Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders and teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Outreach. That's Outreach.io, the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach supports sales reps by enabling them to humanize communications at scale from automating the soul-sucking manual work that eats up sales time to providing action-oriented tips on what communications are working best. Outreach has your back. It's a great product. The company is filled with amazing people. And I can tell you firsthand, Outreach will make your sales org better. Do yourself a favor and check them out today. The Sales Leadership Podcast is also brought to you by Xvoyant, the one-on-one sales improvement platform that's transforming how high-growth sales leaders use Salesforce around the world. If you're one of the 97% of sales leaders that have a sales process but don't have a structured one-on-one coaching process, check out Xvoyant today. The Xvoyant team will show you how your one-on-ones with each rep can drive purpose-driven activities in a way that will change careers in, in, in your organization almost immediately. If you don't have a plan on how you can help every rep on your team improve by at least 10%, Xvoyant can help you grow faster than you ever thought possible. We appreciate each of our listeners and are committed to introducing you to the most innovative, most successful sales leaders in the world. If you like what you hear, please keep those reviews coming on your favorite podcast sites. Your reviews make it easier for more people to find this show and be introduced to these sales success blueprints. Now... Get ready for some sales insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we're joined by Jonathan Graham, Managing Director of Inward Revenue Consulting. IRC is a technology sales recruiting business with no recruiting consultants. Yes, I said that right, and I can't wait to learn about that. They are a technology company that uses AI to fill strategic roles with no unnecessary pressure of the traditional recruiter. I'm excited to have Jonathan on our show today. I got a feeling this is going to be a fun conversation. Jonathan, welcome to our show and thanks for joining us. How's it going, Rob? Awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You are a very unique organization and I'm really excited to get your perspective on some of the biggest challenges that sales leaders are going to face in 2020. Really, thanks for joining us, man. Thank you for having us on the show. I, I'm, I too am actually rather excited about telling you all about it. Okay. Well, why don't you start by telling all of our listeners about IRC and, and what you do and where you fit for sales leaders? Okay. So the IRC story, um, we are a technology sales recruiting business. We are very different to the traditional recruiting mold where you would expect a 25-year-old recruiter who was driven by commissions, pumped up, aggressive, driven, cares only about his commission. We have a sourcing and recruiting model that is all about effective opportunity marketing, and we use technology, a little bit of AI, a little bit of bot-driven technology to provide really neat recruiting solutions for our clients. That's really cool. How long have you guys been doing this? Well, we weren't always doing it, Rob. Um, 
if you looked at Inward Revenue Consulting, we've been going for 13 years, the traditional IRC model was a room full of guys. So when we first started, we, we started the business the week before the 2008 economic crash. Um, and on that day, when we started the business, actually a, a big bank in the United Kingdom, the Northern Rock, which was literally, it was the preceding moment. I think it was as big in the UK as Fannie Mae and whatever it was in America. Right. It was, right. what, I can't remember the name of those two American banks, but it was as big a moment in the UK economy as those two going under okay. were in the UK. And Michael and I, my business partner, we were in a fold-up office um, in uh, a building called Round Foundry Media Centre, which is a beautiful building down in Leeds. And we set about building the business on that day. And it was pretty tough, but we built a very traditional sales recruitment business, um, which was recruitment consultant X runs desk Y in territory Z. He has a target. There is a whiteboard. There is a bell. There is commission. The commission accelerates like hell, place the candidate at all costs. And, you know, I, I don't want to denigrate that model too greatly um, because we made money out of that model. You know, there were some tough times during 08, 09, but 2010 to probably 2016, 2017, we had some really, really good times. Cool. And we built a business full of alpha male lunatics. Um, and it was great. And we had some great fun and some great nights out. And, uh, you know, I paid the bills and the school fees and my mortgage and I drove a nice car. And, you know, I shouldn't really complain about it. <laughs> and then there was one day we had a London office and Michael and I were, were sat in a meeting one day and we realized that something wasn't working. And what we realized was working was two things. One, the sailors had basically taken over the ship um, and we weren't in control of our business and our destiny anymore. And two, we realized that the model of the traditional recruitment consultancy was going to die. And I still believe that's the case, but most of the recruitment industry is fighting very aggressively against that. And what I mean by that is when I first started in recruitment, Rob, I had on my desk, no computer. I had a telephone, didn't even have a headset. I had a telephone and I had a tin box. Yeah. And in that tin box were index cards. And in that, one of those index cards would say, Rob Jepson, CEO. And I would then ring you up. And if I had your mobile number, or if I had your telephone number, even your direct dial number, I had something nobody else had. And I had power and value by sheerly and purely having that data. Okay. And the traditional recruitment model is still based on that. Um, i.e. I know candidate X or client Y, or I know this guy, or I know that guy. And what Mike and I realized was that the democratization of data, and there is so much data, and everybody has the same data. So I can now, if I wanted, if I didn't know you, I could get your mobile number and your email address in under 20 seconds. Bang, done. It's in my database. I can then market to you, sell to you, canvas you, and get through to you very quickly. And I no longer own a monopoly on that piece of information or maybe a small oligopoly with a few other people in the industry. So what we realized was, well, hold on a minute. If the data is ubiquitous, then the leverage of owning the data and quote unquote, having a black book or being the man that knows so-and-so, those days are over. There's no leverage in it. So where is the leverage? 
And what we said was the leverage, and we realized, is actually in the ability to touch people in a way that is effective and at scale without breaking down the warmth of what we do. So we turned the business into a very marketing-driven and technology-driven business. And every and no disrespect to the guys that worked for us, but we asked a simple question, which was, if I'm paying a man to do that, can I get a machine to do it more effectively? And that may sound a bit cold, but what we have done, if you look at the profit of our business and the success of the business, and, you know, Mike and I were just talking about this earlier, we are very busy. I don't know if you've ever read The Business Coach by Bradley Sugars, but he talks about Joe and Nelly owning a bakery. And I said, I feel like we're baking a lot of bread at the moment, you and I, but Mike's point was, he said, yeah, but the customers are queuing up outside the bakery right now. And so it's a very different business model that is very profitable without the stress of re- of managing lots and lots of alpha male recruitment consultants who are very needy and also at the time impossible to hire. Super cool. I love the story. And I, I would guess that your timing is pretty good right now because uh, as I listen to you talk I, and I work with sales leaders everywhere, I know that, that team building is right now, it's, it's, if it's not number one, it's the number yeah. two thing that people are talking about. And if you have a way that you can eliminate some of that guesswork or make it more efficient or maybe more economical, I, I got to think people are really interested in, in what you're able to do for them. Yeah. So, so okay. let's get into that a little bit. Let's, let's Go ahead. talk about that. I mean, I guess first I want, before I do, I want to learn a little, just a, just a little bit more about you. Uh, what drew you to the, uh, to this recruiting, uh, at sales, particularly sales recruiting world? Eh? Okay. Uh, my experience has been, uh, most people, uh, have sales find them they don't grow up looking for it right no i i am not gonna come on any podcast show and say all i ever wanted to do since i was a kid was be a recruitment consultant i i, yeah. I, I wanted to be a rock and roll star um and i am a frustrated failed rock and roll star are you a singer um, or an instrument player i i am a singer um nice uh, yeah um can you not see i'm slightly growing my hair again because i'm starting a new <laughs> band this year um and uh, so when I left university, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was a great singer and I was singing in bands and things were going very, very well with, with my musical career. And actually, you know, if I look back now, I should have stuck with it. I just didn't have the guts. Um, okay. And it's, a, it, you know, at 25, having the guts to say, no, I'm all in. I'm going to go to 28, 29, 30, and I'm going to keep doing this. That is an enormous call, and it's a call I didn't have the courage at the time to make. And all my friends around me, you know, I'm from a, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a person with a sob story. I grew up in a nice part of the world. My parents were a nice people. I grew up on a nice street. Um, I went to a good school, and all, and I have friends who are all, you know, nice, hardworking, honest guys, all educated boys. And at 25, my friends, there was one particular weekend, and I remember it very clearly were was we were all young and single and everybody had jobs but i was playing in bands and in a rubbish job and uh <laughs> the boys all met up and the uh, it was in the very earliest days of text messaging and the text message that went round was meet at king's cross train to paris for the weekend bring your toothbrush and i couldn't afford to go on a boys weekend in paris wow and i realized at the time i had really really long hair and 
I was walking around in secondhand clothes because I thought it was cool. And I just thought one day I am falling behind my peers here very badly. And I made a decision that that wasn't acceptable to me. I was living in an awful part of town in like a student area of town. They were all living in nice flats and eating in good restaurants. And this was a group of friends I'm still very close to. And I just thought if I don't make a move here now, that I'm going to get left behind. And I made a decision and I put, there was an advert in those days, jobs were put in newspapers, which I'm sure some of your readers, yeah, uh, some sure. of our listeners probably don't quite know what they are. I remember um, those days, man. I remember <laughs> them well. And, and, uh, and the jobs were in the newspaper was this job for an IT sales guy paying 50 K base, which was an enormous base in Sterling at the time and a hundred K OTE. And because I was arrogant and I was on my 11,000 pound salary, as a sales force, uh, sales, po- uh, parcel force sales graduate uh, at the post office, uh, I thought that I was more than well equipped for said senior sales job and nice. rang up to apply. And the guy who ran the business, Dave Shields, who actually I, I recently reacquainted with, um, said, well, listen, if you've got the guts to think that you're potentially capable of doing that job, you better come and see me. And he owned a, a recruitment firm called Howard Jackson which was literally like a proper boiler room. Wow. Um, like the archetypal recruitment boiler room, um, aggressive, intense. You know, I one day, one day I had a physical fist fight over a sales lead. No way. Colleague. Yeah. Yeah. Did you physical, win the fight? Uh, it was stopped. <laughs> I would have done. I would have done. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and yeah, so it was a, I had a physical fist. It, it was that kind of environment where if you went for lunch, and you came back, your list of index cards would be lower because people would have gone through your leads and taken the best ones because you went for lunch without locking your briefcase. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it was intense. It was old intense. school. That, I love it. Yeah, it was really intense. And that and that was that was the beginning of my sales career, really. Although I had been in sales prior to that, that really was the beginning. No, see, I love that. I, I love hearing people's stories because sales is so different right now. And like there's so many people that are just – it's less like, hey, I'm going to show up. Give me the numbers of who to call. And you know, my my career started different, but not fairly similar. It was you can eat what you kill, and you know we'll give you a phone and we'll give you a patch and good luck, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I, I love hearing stories like yours. So thank you for sharing it. So you right now work with sales leaders worldwide, mm-hmm. trying to help them fill strategic positions and do yes, it a different do. way. Yeah. So we're going to try to fix this recruiting model that you have. Internal recruiting may be expensive or timely and hiring uh, maybe other recruiters, maybe it's expensive and it just comes down to do they have a good network and you say, hey, we're going to give you tools to help you do it a different way. Yeah. As you work with sales leaders to do this, I'm very interested. What are you seeing the, the sales, what, what are you seeing when it comes to team building? What are the things that the great leaders are doing right? And what are the things that you think are mistakes that when you, get, you kind of shake your head and say, oh man, this one's not going to go well. I'm really interested, based on your perspective of working with sales leaders in this role of, hey, I don't have a dog in the fight, but you get to see who's going to be successful and not successful. What are some of the observations you've had as it comes to team building that the great ones do that maybe the average ones don't do? The great ones, it's very, very, very simple. Um, The great ones hire for skills, and they don't hire for experience. Now, that's really interesting. So I got to ask you a couple questions that the great ones hire for skills, not experience. Yeah. Okay? So, so may I expand ahead. on that for a second? Yeah, please. So 
uh, I'll give you a great example is I'm working a, a vacancy today and the client's original job brief was the candidate must have a track record of five years sales of digital transformation solutions, minimum order value, million pounds plus. Now, actually, this particular organization is 800, 800 employees, a couple of hundred million turnover. It's a nice business. Yeah. You know, global company, offices across the world, successful. It's predominantly consulting-led. But if you look at that job brief, there's so many other subtle nuances to that brief. And those nuances are that, yeah, great, you want a digital transformation guy. And, okay, yeah, you're paying money that's in parity with the rest of the market. But actually, do you really have the leverage with which to hire somebody in that market space? And if you do, does it necessarily mean they're going to be successful? And my conversation originally with this client started a year ago where we did some work on the project. And at the time, I met him in London and I said, look, I think you're going to hire an experienced digital transformation salesman from one of the big competitors, Wipro, Capgemini, Atos, and I think they'll fail. And he said, why? And at the time I said, because you're a small team in the UK. This is a dirty street fighting sales job. Nobody's ever heard of you in the UK. And you're going to hire some corporate guy who's going to fail miserably. My client went out and hired an extremely experienced guy from a brand name organization. And part of that is because actually what he hired was the brand logo on the CV right. with which to justify the hire to his bosses. Right. So he could say to his bosses, look, guys, I got a guy from a big brand organization. But what he didn't do was go out and think, well, actually, no, what I need is a tough, dirty little street fighter for whom this is a great career move, who's going to walk in, not be afraid of doing what's going to be the really difficult stuff. I've been that guy, man. I've made that mistake. I, I have absolutely made that mistake earlier in, in my career for sure. Yeah. Uh, I thought, oh, I got this guy from this company that everybody's heard of and how you know he crushed it. We were a younger company at the time and, and big company guy was used to having a different set of tools. Yeah. When I needed a scrappy fighter, to your point, he didn't know how to fight. No. He, he just knew how to be enabled, if that makes sense. Yeah. He was sat there, where are my leads? Where's this? Right. Yeah. Where's my pre-sales guy? Right. And actually, when we, when we talked about it, three months in, the guy was, my client already knew the guy was failing. And we talked about it and I said, look, Let's go back a minute. And one of the things we like to do with clients is I like to do a workshop with them where I'll get a whiteboard out and I'll say, okay, let's break it down into uh, some really core cool bits. The environment, the behaviors, the skills, what's important to you, where are you at? And we can spend a whole afternoon on it. And when it really comes to it, when you look at the skills required to do a job, it's nearly always fundamentally different to the vet, to the job spec that the clients give you. And very few clients are enlightened enough to realize that actually there is a massive difference between what you want and what you need. And uh, it's an uh, almost a self-awareness thing. All right. I got to push pause, Jonathan, because you just brought up something that I hadn't thought of before. So what you're, if I'm writing down, I'm taking notes here, job specs, are often wrong is what me translating. Nine saying. out of 10. Yeah. Nine out of 10. Okay. Yeah. Nine so out of 10. Are, are, why nine are they always so wrong? Then nine out of 10 are monumentally wrong, Rob. All right. 
I want to go into this. We're going to go into this a little bit because I think this is something that our listeners probably, I hope that their ears are picking up, perking up saying, hey, I better make sure I get my job specs right. Because if team building is the biggest challenge and we can't even get the spec right, no wonder we're having a hard time hiring the right people. Fair to say? Yeah. So there's a whole host of things. One, I mean, we could we could spend a long time on this, but there's a for me, the main reason the job specs are wrong is because clients, I, my experience over 20 years in recruitment is clients very rarely give any thought whatsoever to the job spec. And actually, they just, it, it's, they create, there are a lot of mental shortcuts that take place between the moment at which the budget is signed off to go out and hire and the point at which a recruiter is brief, whether that's an internal recruiter or an external recruiter. So what and are those, some things that you see them overlook? I mean, so they get a budget approved, and I get it. I, I've Listen, I, I've been on both sides of that. I've been on the side where I say, hey, you got headcount, get it filled. And I've been on the other side where someone says, okay, you've got headcount, fill it. And, yeah. and I felt that pressure on both sides. And I can see why people overlook stuff, especially maybe if you're a young company and you haven't figured out, like, what you're really hiring for. So what are some common things that people overlook or they miss? I'd love to get a punch list together of things that our our listeners might want to be thinking more about. It's about really spending time thinking, well, if you're an established business, it's about asking what does and what doesn't define success in this business. And I I bet if I got a hundred sales leaders in this room now, it's a pretty small room, but if I got a hundred sales leaders in this room and did a straw poll, when was the last time you sat down and asked yourself that top performer in our business, why is he a top performer? What are the actual behavioral things that that top performer, he or she does behaviorally every day that make them successful? When was the last time that that sales leader spent two days just hanging around with that performer and thinking, what is it that you do so well that means that you're winning? And then making sure that they distinguish it from the fact that, A, for example, top performer X might have the best accounts, or it might be that your brand is powerful and you're winning anyway, because the rising tide does float all boats. For sure. Um, Or B, is it because actually this guy or girl is doing something a little bit different to perhaps the other guys who aren't? What is it behaviorally? And go out and hire for those behaviors. And what in technology in our world... Clients obsess over technological experience. There's an assumption. If I sell enterprise performance management software, candidate X from enterprise performance management software company Y, he's going to be okay. Not really. (laughs) Unlikely. Actually, and therefore what happens is then the candidate walks into the interview and there's a whole host of things happening here. One, there's the brand logo on the CV. And human beings, we're all weak for brands. Yeah. We are brand weak. I'm brand weak. I am literally, you know, Michael, my colleague, takes, in England we have a phrase called taking the piss. Um, I don't know if you use it in America. Michael <laughs> takes the mickey out of me all the time and about the fact that I, I am an Apple fanboy. And okay. I, am weak, I am weak, weak as a kitten for the Apple brand. So that's right. called taking the piss if you're a, okay. Yeah, that's a, a bit of classic uh, British vernacular. <laughs> nice, um, I love it. Yeah, uh, um, but actually I'm weak for the Apple brand. I've got an Apple watch, an iPad. I've got, I've got all the Apple kit. But actually clients are weak for brands. 
So they, so they see the CV with the brand on it, and without realizing it's a subconscious brand weakness, they go, yeah, I'll interview him. Yes. Then what happens is in walks candidate X from competitor Y, and they feel like they've met a kindred spirit. So they go, wow, I love you. You work for my competitor. Oh, do you remember that deal? Yeah, yeah, I took that one off you. Yeah, yeah, but I took that one off you too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they all have a really great chat. And at the end of the interview, the client has completely forgotten to work out whether the guy's got the skills to do the job. And the candidate's completely forgotten to qualify whether the job is actually the right job for him or not. And then six months later, they've all married at heist and repented at leisure. So this so, is interesting. I'm starting to get a better understanding how AI can be helpful in this because AI ha- helps other places where either it's a job that can be repeatable, it's a machine can do, or if there's an opportunity for human bias to get in the way of decision-making. Yeah. And so by you doing this, you eliminate some of that bias. A little bit. Oh, yeah, I get that. that that's, I want to get but into that But the real more. trick is actually for us, you know, we, you can use technology, but the real trick is disciplining clients to really think about skills and often, you, not only do you get better hires from that, but you can save. We've seen, um, and the vacancy I was talking about earlier with the digital transformation job, I've just lowered that client's hiring budget by about £40,000. Yeah. Because actually, he doesn't need to spend the money he thinks he needs to spend to get the skills he needs to buy. So I want to get into how do you identify skills, because you must have been able to figure out a way to to identify skills faster. But to your point, your story earlier, and I love your story about how a good salesperson can make you feel like you've been friends for a long time and make you stop focusing yeah. on what will make the job uh, be a success or not a success. I get that. Isn't the ability to connect with another person potentially an important skill for a salesperson to have? I think it's a given. Okay. And so and that... The, and the, the candidate shouldn't be in the room if the... So, we uh, we have um, a very specific interviewing model, Rob. Where nice. Um, we we it's a, a we call it IRC fifty, where we elicit certain things. Every candidate will tell you during the interview. When sometimes we'll dig into uh, specific er- areas of a deal or so on. I'd say sixty percent of candidates will say, "When why did you win that deal?" They'll say, "It's because I'm a good relationship builder." Right. But everybody, you should, don't don't even be in the room if you're not a good relationship builder. <laughs> what are you doing here? Why are we why are we having this conversation if you're not a good relationship builder? We're in sales for God's sake. Right. The real issue is, and this is something we see clients doing a lot, is I used to have a, a boss who's a very intelligent guy. In fact, the most intelligent guy I've ever worked with called Chris Spencer, who floated a company in the UK called Emis which is um, the UK's biggest healthcare software vendor. Wow. Uh, And he floated it, took it onto the stock exchange. Chris is semi-retired now doing a bit of VC stuff. And Chris used to say, the thing is, Johnny, about sales, and Chris is a truly clever guy. He used to say, 30% of the deals that we win are because technically technically marketing understand what the market wants. And therefore, they then tell the technical team what to build, and we should win 30% of our deals because actually we just design the right software for the market. I like it. The other 30% of the deals should come because marketing go out and tell the world that we designed the right software for the market. And therefore, the customers know and they buy it. So the last 30%, that's the bit I pay the salesman the commission for. They're the deals we wouldn't ordinarily have won had the sales guy not been there. 
And that queen. is a really interesting approach. I like that. So I just interrupted you. So please forgive me, but yeah, okay. I love the insight. So the first third is we just have the right product, right market, right fit. People, yep. we just did it right. Second, we have good marketing that told the world that we had the right product. Sales guys, your job is to find the ones that don't find in categories one and two. Yes, like absolutely. That. But it, it, when clients are hiring, what then what client when clients are going to market? What I see is most clients actually hire the first two-thirds of the salesman. And what they're not quite looking for when they're interviewing or looking at the CV is the value-added element of the salesman in the deals that only he would have won. And had he been run over by a bus, those deals would never, ever, ever have happened. No chance. You don't get them. So that's what I like. So this is what I'm going to call the you're, – you're looking to hire people – that will be able to help you get more than what the market gives. You know, yeah. The market will give you this. We're hiring people that get the and then some part. Market gives you this. We want the and then some. I like yeah. that. So what yeah. are the skills that help she or he be effective in finding the ones that wouldn't just pre present themselves to you? It's about sit. So there are so many little tells and we do sometimes a little coaching thing with clients and I, I <laughs> little plug at some point this year there is a book coming out with lots and lots of advice and support on how to do this it's the little things looking out for things like we the word we in an interview so tell me about that deal well we did this and we did that oh really we who's we we how much of the deal was you and actually really spending time getting into with the candidate the areas of the deal where they added value who was you and, and really getting into case studies with clients so it's the very basics of competence-based interviewing tell me about a time when you won a deal that wouldn't have happened had you not been there i can tell you now that one question in and of itself will flummox a significant proportion of the candidate pool at least 60 percent so that's a really interesting way to look at it. If we're hiring for the third that will win stuff that we otherwise would have never won, which I really like. You're the first person to really bring that lens to me that I've ever had talks about. Okay. Thank you. I love it. You can see, we're looking at each other. You can see I'm really, I'm really kind of introspective on this. I like it. It would really, really would change exactly how you look for people and how you interview. Yeah, because right? we've all had deals, Rob. Yeah. You're a sales guy. I'm a sales guy. You know, we all get deals where, we turn up in the morning, there's a lead on the, in, in, in the old days, there was a lead on the fax machine um, or there's a lead in your email. You pick it up, you go see the customer and everything's just right. And a month later, you've got 50,000 pounds and yeah, okay, you had to work hard and you had to work the contract. But in reality, had you not been there, a another sales guy would have won that deal. We've all got those. We all get those all the time. That's what marketing people and product people, that's what we build our businesses for. But then there are the deals that we make happen. That's what sales guys get paid the commissions for. And then, the, so the issue is when you, and we I try and encourage clients to do it, but a lot of clients aren't aware of it, is actually digging into that deal then. So how did that deal come about? Oh, well, uh, it was a marketing lead. Okay, right. Fair enough. Sometimes you can do a good job with a lead when, and it might have been a very competitive sales process. What exactly, and it, it's not that complex, what did you do to win the deal? 
Now, actually, there's a couple of things here, which is often the very best sales guys, in my experience, won't be able to answer that question that well because they are unconsciously competent. So part of the problem is then learning how to elicit from the sales guy, actually, the process he went through, if, if you understand the, com the, the concept of unconscious competence, the process he went through to win the deal, and often the best ones because they're experienced, because they go through an immediate mental shortcut as to how to win a deal. So my wife's very good at this. She's a very good salesperson in the healthcare market. I know if she goes to an appointment and sniffs out a deal in a potential appointment, she's worked out the whole strategy for the sale by the time she's back at the car and the commission. Um, but if you asked her, how did you win that deal? She said, I don't know. I just went and closed them. But actually, there's an awful lot of skill and experience in how it was done. You right. Know, she's, she's been in sales since she was 16. Um, and there's a lot of years of experience, training, knowledge, and value that she brings to the table. But the trick is actually getting into, okay, so let's start. Well, where did the lead come from? What did you do with the lead? How did you approach the lead? What did you say to that lead? How did you actually get the client to meet you? And what most sales leaders don't do is go that granular. And that's because the market is so candidate driven. Part of it is a fear that the candidate might get up and walk out of the interview. And part of it is actually sloth and laziness. And part mm. of it is a lack of understanding of what value that would bring to the interview. So, Jonathan, I've lots of organizations do win-loss reviews, and I've spent a lot of time myself being involved in win-loss yep. reviews. But you're talking, you're not talking about just win-loss reviews. You're no. talking about individual salesperson reviews per speak. You know, what did you do? I wrote three things to either originate the opportunity, pursue the opportunity, or close the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, what were the things you did? So this is about having a key understanding of the high and low value activities. What are the yeah. high value activities that we want to make sure that we replicate as often as possible? Yeah. So there are some salespeople who are cunning. They are smart, cunning individuals. And when we interview them, you can see it. You, you, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day who was telling me about how he he knew that a senior decision maker that he wanted to speak to was going to be at a certain event on a certain day. And he, and he said the biggest part of, and he explained to me, he said the hardest part about winning that deal was persuading my boss to sign off on a ticket to this event and paying for it. Cause it was a very expensive event, but he knew it was the only way he was ever going to get to meet that decision maker and ever get through to him. He was a very senior level decision maker. And the only way he was ever going to win that sale was being in that, being in that room with that guy. But he knew why he'd won that deal. He said, once I got in front of him and I had 15 minutes explaining to him where the value add was, the whole thing went really easily. But he said, that was, that was where I made my difference. And actually, he knew that he'd made his difference in making the sale to his boss. That was wow. where he'd make, that was where he earned his commission. He said, I ain't my commission in a meeting room with my boss selling to him why I should sign off 2,000 pounds worth of expenses for me to go to this, to this event. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit. We have, 10 minutes left. I okay. can't believe how fast it's gone. Thank you again for joining us. Time flies us. when you're having fun. Yeah, there's no doubt, Jonathan. You're, you're, I love your insight. I love your perspective. I would now, as I listen to you, I would argue that a large percentage of the salespeople today, at least the ones that are entering like the, the job market today, are those people that want to be category two or maybe one salespeople. Well, hey, we have the right product for the right market. We have... 
you know, lots of marketing that's going to bring you. Salespeople like to tell me all the time, hey, I shouldn't have to prospect. I should just be selling. Um, thoughts around, um, yeah, I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. I'm glad to hear you laugh. I believe that the ability to find your own deals is the most important skill a salesperson Agreed. Agreed. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, we got a lot of, of, of salespeople that want to be managers that, frankly, say, I would leave a company if I had to prospect. If you're not going to tell me who to sell to, I would leave. Can you yeah. kind of talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. So I think it's a socio-demographic and economic thing, this, Rob. And what I mean by that is, I, I, I don't know what age you are. I'm, I was 48 in December, and I was talking about it. my first sales job was in the U.K., in Thatcher's Britain, in the depths of a recession. And when I first came into sales, there was millions of people who were unemployed in the United Kingdom. We, th this country was in an economically very dark place in, when I was in my first sales job. The implications of that were, one, it was sell or die, sell or go home. I love that. I love that. And two, my employers had leverage over me which was, I can say what I want to you, I can tell you to do what I want you to do, and you're going to suck it up, kid, because there are 20 other kids who will kill for this job right now. Okay. As a result of that, we were forged in fire, and we were made tougher for it. And what I've discovered, and it, this isn't me harking back to a halcyon era of the 1980s, it wasn't pleasant. And people said things to me as an employee that I would not want somebody saying to my child. Um, <laughs> I, I, no, I, do you know what I mean? If I knew, I would be really, really, I'd probably be getting in my car with a baseball bat if somebody spoke to my kid like that. Okay. Uh, um, but what it did do was it created, uh, there were, it, it made much tougher, mentally tougher and much hungrier sales guys out of us. Now we are in a very good economic environment and we're in the, in the UK, I know for a fact, we're in the lowest period of economic unemployment in the history yeah. of economics. Yep. And therefore the candidates and salespeople have a mobility of labor that they've never known and an economy that they've never experienced. That, that even when we had the crash of 2008, the unemployment level never really fell that badly. So what, uh, and salespeople have very short memories. Um, you know, it's a little bit like having multiple children, isn't it? If we, if somehow we're all genetically programmed to forget how difficult it is. Um, and in the same way, salespeople are genetically programmed to forget difficult years. Um, right. and therefore what we've got now is a new wave of sales guys. And I don't like to use the phrase millennial or generation Z or whatever, but we have a new wave of sales guys who've never experienced a tough world. And so they work for companies that are blitz scaling very rapidly, like, I don't know, Tableau and Salesforce. And these companies are, are scaling at an enormous rate and there is an enormous thirst for what they sell. And actually, they've never really known what actually hewing a deal out of stone really means. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who've never known what hewing a deal out of stone really means who are earning half a million dollars a year. Wow. And so, and, and we meet them, we meet them all the time where you look at the guy and think, okay, you're smart, you're intelligent, you're good looking, you're likable, you, you're smooth, you know your stuff, but actually you're in half a million dollars a year and you don't really bring that much to the party. And they've leveraged up and up and up and up. So my, my point being is cold calling, 
doing new business. Yeah, at the moment, the market is such that people have got such mobility of labor, they, they don't need to do it. So I'm going to wrap this up, and then we'll wrap up the, this conversation, unfortunately, because I think I could talk to you for a long time. I want to get into your rock and roll today someday as well. <laughs> I'm a guitar player, so we, right. we're a good match. I'll, I'll play, you can sing. Um, if you're a sales leader that's listening to the show, we got thousands of them around the world listening to you right now, okay? Right. I'm thinking as I listen to you, a good thing that a sales leader ought to do if they're developing salespeople is make part of your coaching plans with them. Let's not just do categories one and two. Like, let's start teaching people how to be a number three salesperson because that might be the most portable skill you can have is the ability yeah. to find deals. Would, would you, would you, incur, maybe you can finish this conversation with some, some thoughts to our sales leaders that are listening. Uh, how do you, how do you help develop category three salespeople? what the deals that wouldn't have happened had they not been there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's about showing people the bigger picture over a 20, 30 year period over, over a 30 year sales career, you are going to work in a recession over a 30 year sales career. At some point, let me tell you a storm will come and over a 30 year sales career, you will have out of 30 years, six horrible, horrible years fact love it so Not at love some it'll point, be hard but I, I love the perspective yeah it's a fact 30 year sales career you are going to have six horrific years years where you will sit and wonder what the hell did i do with my life how the hell did i end up here why am i in this profession maybe i should go and do something different they, that's just fact i've been in recruitment for 20 years i've met a lot of salespeople, thousands of them and everybody has a tough, dark time. So the question is, what skills do you need to survive the dark times? And the skills that you actually mm. need to survive the dark times, the ones that survive in the moments of abject darkness, is only one skill. And that skill is the ability to pick up a phone and get an appointment when nobody else could. Oh, Jonathan, that's awesome. That's dirty talk to me, man. I mean, that's, that's sales <laughs> dirty talk to me, brother. But it is. It, but it, it is. It's, it's it's becoming a lost art, I believe. And yeah. and I believe that for the current generation of salespeople and those that are entering it, if they can be taught early on, that is a way to be differentiated. That's a way to have longevity. Yeah. That's a way to make sure that you can always be not dependent on anyone. I yeah. think that that's a good, I think that I was going to wrap up our conversation. It's me to encourage our sales leaders become not just recruiting people that are c category three that already know how to find their own deals, Develop those category three people. Teach them those skills. Make yeah. that part of what you develop them. Celebrate those things. Target those things. Make a big deal. Maybe even set those differently, right? And yeah. and so I, I love it. You got me fired up. I want to go. I want to go call someone right now, man. I'm gonna. I'm telling you, <laughs> when we're finished, I'm getting on my phone. Okay, listen, we're 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 out of time, and I finish every conversation the same three ways. So I want to get into our rapid fire very quickly. Okay. Uh, three questions, uh, three, three answers. And, and these are, these are fan favorites. I can't wait to get your take because you've already touched on, on two of them already. Number one, what do you think the biggest sales leadership challenge that sales leader face and, and, and how do you suggest they beat it? I, I guess we've kind of really covered that. It's, yeah, it, it, it's hiring for skill and hire, making sure that you're hiring the right people, not the people who look right on paper. I love it. And, and the way you beat it, just one or two sentences. Yeah. Uh, if there was one thing to do in an interview, pick a deal, dig and dig 
and dig. Which takes me to question two now. I, mean, is- I, I love, I love how layered you're like, you're, you really have been a great conversation for this. And this is the number one thing our, that our listeners have told me they love to get. When you're interviewing a candidate, what's your go-to question and what are you looking for? I think you've already shared it, but maybe we can, we yeah. can just explore it just a little My bit more. My favorite is if I bumped into you in a pub and I said to you, what do you do? What would you say? And what are you looking for there? I'm looking for the ones that are going to turn around to me, look me straight in the eye and say, I'm a salesman. Well, what else do you think I am? Because actually, uh, and this is a sad fact, I would say at least half will tell you something other than the fact that they're in sales. I'm a trusted advisor. I'm a consultant. I help customers do X. But I can tell you now the correlation between the ones that will look you directly in the eye and say, I'm a salesman, idiot, and their CVs and their P60s and their success year on year it's always the ones who have strong identity as sales professionals who win. I love it. Okay, last one. Um, we found that leaders are readers. So for people that are in their sales leadership journey, people that are either are leaders that want to get better, or people that are preparing for it, I don't care if it's a book that you're turning pages or an audible or if it's a blog or a podcast. Is there something that you would recommend that people get their hands on or get in their ears and, and make sure that they're, cool. they're paying attention to? Well, I mean, we talked about this off air and I mean, I'm a, a ridiculous and voracious reader. Um, yep. but I, I think for me, there is a go-to book, which is Awaken the Giant Within by Anthony Robbins. Hmm. No one suggested that one. I can't wait to get that on our list. Thank you. Really? I like that. Yeah. And I know the <laughs> book, but you're the first person in 80 some odd episodes to recommend that one. And I, I like it. Tony Robbins, good call. Good, good yeah. book. That's a really good one. I can get behind that. I've read it. It's a great, great, great book. So I love it. It's hey, so full of so much stuff. Jonathan, this has been awesome. I, I, I love your approach to, to, to building your team with people who will win regardless of what the market gives. I, I like yeah. that. Um, for people that are listening that are intrigued and they want to keep the conversation going and, and they want to learn more and, and connect with you, how do they learn more about you? How do they learn more about IRC? How do they connect with you? How, how do they keep the conversation going? You can find us on LinkedIn. Um, so look me up, Jonathan Graham, uh, Jonathan at inwardrevenue.co.uk if you want to talk to me. Or alternatively, check out our podcast, which is IRC Book Club, where every week we read a sales text or a business text. Cool. And then at the, yeah, it's really cool, this book club. Super cool. And, and we normally do it over four weeks. So we'll pick a book over four weeks. We'll read it. Um, and we read it like a reading group. And then we talk about it. And then at the end of every month, the author comes on the show and talks to us about the book. What's the name of that podcast again? I want to make sure we push that for you. IRC Book Club. IRC Book Club is the name of the podcast. Sounds yeah. like a good one. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. He's helping He's helping sales teams take what the market gives and then some, which is our mission as well. Uh, this guy is a new kindred spirit of mine. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and happy selling. Thank you. Been a pleasure, Rob. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, Why did that conversation even matter? And I loved having Jonathan on the show today to share his lessons that he's learned in an outstanding career in building some of the world's most successful sales teams. But I first need to thank our friends at Outreach for their support of the Sales Leadership Podcast and for helping us showcase great leaders like Jonathan and their work in helping sales leaders around the world build highly successful teams by creating sales engagement your reps and your customers will thank you for. Outreach is built by salespeople for salespeople, and they know how to help you scale. Listen, we are all chasing bigger numbers in 2020 than we did in 2019. 
We run to the more button. It's something that we sign up for just by being in sales. And as sales leaders, recruiting and team building is a massive part of the job. That's why I really liked Jonathan's conversation with me so much. Most of the time, I think he's right. I think we hire for the wrong things. And I absolutely loved his rule of thirds. It's something I've never heard before. The first third says sales comes because you have a good market and a good product. The next third is we have good marketing that brings some of the deals to the table as people do their own searching. And then the final third is these are the salespeople who actually go out and get deals that otherwise we wouldn't get. They're not just the order takers. These are the people that would win deals that nobody else would. I loved his definition of that. If this person hadn't shown up to work, if this person had been hit by a bus, or if this person had taken in the job, these are deals we would not have won. So here's the question. I love this. I wrote it down. I've thought a lot about it since the first conversation I have with Jonathan. Can you find salespeople that are able to find, develop, and win when it isn't a simple win, when it isn't served up on a platter, when it required a fight, when when maybe the only reason that we're even talking to them is because this person went out and found it on their own. And, you know, I know for some people that's hypocrisy. I've said this in conferences before that I think that, that the ability to find your own deals, the ability to pro, excuse me, prospect is the most important skill a salesperson can have. And a lot of the modern salespeople think it's a waste of time. I shouldn't be doing that. I should just be, you know, quote, unquote, doing the sales activities. And I think that's created a, an environment of easy come, easy go, um, where I just expect things to be kind of teed up for me and, and I'll close the ones that are closable. And, you know, unfortunately, maybe I get a bunch of crap. I, I think that we have a, a, a generation of people that just haven't learned how to find very well. And so I think that because of this, it means you as a sales leader need to know what turns a loss into a win. It is super easy to hire for experience. I've done it. I shared one of my stories on this, on this conversation. I have hired the really successful person from the mature, well-enabled company and tried to develop them into a young, sorry, I tried to drop them into our young, growing company. I'm thinking of a different company I was with um, where we were trying to figure out the sales model and the sales process. And the person that I'm thinking of got very frustrated very quickly because of the lack of resources, you know. Where are my leads? Where are my enablement materials? Where are my sales support? This person just didn't know what to do. And I, and I often think of Tony Robbins where he says, don't let a lack of resources uh, clo uh, cloak a lack of resourcefulness. So really, is it about resources or resourcefulness? He said, don't let lack of resources turn into a lack of resourcefulness. So my approach that I thought about as I was talking to Jonathan is something that I call RAZOR. Uh, and it's an acronym. R-A-S-R, it stands for Results, Activities, Skills, and Resources. So for your team, you need to know for any given result, the first R, what are the activities, the skills, and then ultimately the resources a company should consider providing to help fuel success. Razor, Results, Activities, Skills, Resources. My experience is sales teams and salespeople don't have the clarity around this that they often need in order to hire for the skills. So you could develop skills, but it takes six months or so just to become proficient, not expert. So if you can understand the required activities and skills and hire for those, rather than just the experience that they had, you'll build a more successful team much more quickly. And so on the flip side, if you're going to understand what your Razor model looks like, what are the activities and skills and resources that will create success, 
It's important to hire people who can tell you exactly why they won and look for people who can share stories with you about how they've used skills that you know matter, how they've conducted activities that you know matter. Can you have them paint by number? John Barrows always has told me, I love his, his the, the best. Picasso just paints, and that's why he would be a crappy leader. The great leader are the ones that say, I do paint by number. I turn it into yellow here, red here, green here. And so if you can do both, have a razor environment on your side and then hire the people with the skills that match, you will find that you can transform a company quickly. My challenge to you, add razor to your organization, and you'll see it creates a structure that facilitates hiring, coaching, and tailoring for the development process. Now you can start asking people, what activities did they do? What skills have you leveraged? And I love what Jonathan said, run like crazy from the I'm great at relationship answer when you're building a team. So I want to thank Jonathan for joining us. It was an insightful, fun conversation. I encourage each of you to connect with him and follow his work. He's a great follow. I also want to thank our friends at Outreach for their support of the show and their contribution to the sales community. If you aren't planning to attend Outreach Unleashed coming up soon, sign up. I'll look forward to meeting you there. I'm looking forward to the, to the opportunity to be with as many of you as possible. Finally, we appreciate each of you, our listeners. If you are enjoying the show, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and tell your colleagues about us. We've got a lot more great leaders coming, and we cannot wait to showcase their blueprints for success. So as you kick off 2020 and you get into the next month of the year, as always, don't worry. Just execute, because we got you. Thanks for joining us for the Sales Leadership Podcast, your weekly pipeline to the most successful thought leaders and rainmakers in sales. Make sure to check out additional episodes at salesleadershippodcast.com. The Sales Leadership Podcast is produced by Brian Jepson and is sponsored by Exploit, the modern sales leadership platform for Salesforce.com users. You can visit Exploit at exvoyant.com.